Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Doug and Kirsten Hill with Colwell Banker Residential Brokerage in Mesa, Arizona. They worked the East Valley of Metro Phoenix. Last year, they closed 138 transactions with a total sales volume of $23 million. Their average sales price was $165,000. 49% were buyers and 51% were sellers. They operate a team with six members, one listing manager, one short sale manager, one transaction manager, one REO manager, one buyer agent, and one showing agent. Doug and Kirsten Hill are the team leaders of the Hill Group. Doug has been an agent for 11 years and Kirsten for 19. This husband and wife team specializes in past client repeat and referral business, which accounted for 50% of their production last year. They generated 25% of their business from REO and foreclosure, 15% from online activities, and 10% from relocation work. Doug and Kirsten will go into detail about how they develop, maintain, and expand their business with past clients, including how they collect data, follow up, and market with events like movie nights, barbecues, and exclusive dinners. This is a family operation. Doug and Kirsten are joined by their two adult sons, Joshua and Andrew. The Hill Group has weathered the changing markets of the last few years by being flexible, forward-looking, and open to change. Doug and Kirsten are experimenting with the showing agent concept. This is a division of tasks normally handled by a buyer agent. Listen to how it's working out. Kirsten has become an expert at processing and closing short sales. Listen to how she gets her files accepted and approved. Doug was featured on HGTV House Hunters. Doug takes you behind the scenes and describes what really happens to make one episode. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Doug and Kirsten. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you were doing before you got into real estate. Kirsten, let's hear from you first. Okay. Well, I have been in sales probably all of my adult life. I used to sell semiconductors, and then I sold lighting, and then I uh, got into real estate, and that was kind of where I was always headed. I think my parents have always owned a lot of real estate, and I remember being a little girl and drug out in the car on Sunday afternoons to go out and look at properties. (laughs) So came by it honestly. 
Doug? Right after high school, I joined the service. So I was in the Navy for three years active, and then I was in the reserves for another three years. And then after I got out, I started going to night school, did that while I was working in an accounting office, finished off my degree, continued on in accounting, and then worked in the uh, finance office of the same company. So pretty much my background of a business degree, accounting and finance. Why did each of you pick real estate to go into? I worked for a home builder in Dallas, Texas, and um, I enjoyed that a lot. Like I said, my parents own a lot of real estate, and so it was kind of natural that having a sales background and enjoying looking at properties, I think that's why everybody says they got into real estate. They like working with people, and they like looking at properties. And little did you know at that point, and did I know, (laughs) that you know, all the work that goes into selling real estate besides getting to look at really nice houses. So worked for a couple of different home builders in Texas back in 93. And then when I moved out to Phoenix in 97, got my residential license here. Just kind of fell into it. How about you, Doug? Kind of the opposite. I had no experience whatsoever in real estate. My uh, my parents only owned a home not multiple like Kirsten. So what happened to me was I was working at a company doing contracts and accounting kind of work, and the company was bought out by a larger company, actually Viacom. And when the company was bought out, I was uh, around 39. And so I found myself wondering, gee, well, do I want to keep going down this road or do I want to do something different? I have a, uh, had a, at the time, I had a couple of really good friends who were in accounting, and they always seemed, this one friend of mine in particular, always seemed to be in his front yard mowing it. He always seemed to be doing nothing. So I went up and asked him, hey, what, you know, what do you think about real estate? I also had another good friend who had been in real estate for many, many years, and I knew she really liked it and had become a top producer. So I just interviewed with him and asked him, you know, what do you think? And I just decided, you know, I'm going to make the jump rather than continue to do what I'm doing. I'm going to uh, get into real estate. Did you have a fast start or a slow start when you got in? It was mediocre, <laughs> I would say. You know, I was not on a team. I worked on my own. When I worked for the builder, it was, you know, easy. They just walk in and you, you know, sell them a home or you don't. So that was fairly simple. And I worked with a partner there. And then when I got into residential real estate resale in Phoenix, I didn't know anybody here. My parents were looking to buy a home. So they were my first sale. And then, you know, I I met agents at the office that I joined. I joined a, a great office because the broker at that office was one of the teachers at the school here for real estate, and I really liked him a lot. It was a small office, and there were some older ladies there. They were very helpful, taught me how to pull comps, use the MLS. You know, they would uh, let me go on listing presentations with them. I worked floor duty and, and picked up a lot of a lot of clients from floor duty and doing open houses. So it was, you know, a little slow, but slow and steady. Doug? You know, when I first started with Coldwell Banker, I would say I had more of a slow start than a fast start. But for me, I, I'm pretty glad I happened that way. For me, 
because I, I think I, in my first year I sold about seven homes, somewhere in that range. It wasn't a full year, but I, I sold about seven homes that first year. Uh, but what Cobalt Banker did was they they set you up with a mentor. And I was very fortunate at the time to get my mentor was the top producer in the office. So I was very fortunate. He kind of, he and his wife kind of just, you know, nurtured, nurtured my, my training. And I was able to start slowly and really learn from the bottom up and get a good foundation. My second year was different. After my first year, I just took off like a rocket. How long have each of you been in the business? I started in 1993 back in Texas. And in Texas, if you worked for a home builder, you did not have to be licensed. And then I was licensed in Arizona in end of 97, beginning of 98. I have been in real estate for going on 11 years. I started my uh, real estate classes in 2000. How did you team up? Back in March of 2002, I had been at Cobalt Bankers since August of 2001, and in March of 2002, Doug approached me and asked me if I wanted to work a new buyer show with him. He had already gotten a booth, so there would be no out-of-pocket costs for me, and he had asked the broker in the office who did he think would be uh, good to work the booth with, so he had suggested me, and he and I worked that booth, and it was a two-day show. We had a mortgage person in the booth with us and we ended up closing five buyers from that from that show which was from any other show I'd ever done that was the best outcome I'd ever had so we realized we partnered well and then he was already partnered with somebody else or promised to partner with somebody else one of his mentors was retiring so he had already promised to partner with the other the other person that lasted about a year year, year and a half, yeah. and then he, he and I partnered. It was the best move I ever made. Are you all married? Yes. Happily. Did that happen after this? I assume it happened after this event where you met each other. Yes. Uh-huh. Did you start working as a team before or after you were married? Before. And so you had made a formal team arrangement prior to being married? Correct, yes. That's a good way to test things out. It is. Absolutely. Let's now talk about your market. You're in Mesa, Arizona. Where is Mesa, Arizona? Mesa, Arizona is, it's in Maricopa County in Arizona, and it's a suburb that's located about 20 miles east of Phoenix. It's in the east part of the valley, the metropolitan, Phoenix metropolitan area. It's bordered by the other cities that we we work a lot in, so we our office is in Mesa, but we do a lot of business in the bordering cities of Chandler, Tempe, and Gilbert as well. Describe your current real estate market. Our average price here in Mesa is right now over the last couple of months has been about one hundred and thirty five thousand that's the average price with an average days on market of about seventy five but Kirsten and I, we also work in some other cities. In the Tempe area, the average sale price is around 211, 211,000, and with an average days on market of just around 90, just, just over 90. Chandler, 
that's a little higher. 238, 240,000 is the average price with an average days on the market, which is very similar to Tempe. These are, you know, bordering cities, so not unusual. Very, you know, they're close into Phoenix, which which helps. Um, days on market, you know, they tend to sell a little a little more quickly. Then Gilbert, the over the last couple of months, average sale price somewhere in the high 180s, 190, with around also average days on market just hovering around around 90. Now we also work in Scottsdale. We do a lot of business. Our actual home is in Scottsdale, but the prices up in Scottsdale are a lot higher. Average price up there is almost 410,000 with an average days on market, understandably a little higher, almost 110 days on market. What is the trend in that Metro Phoenix area on price? Is it going up? Is it staying the same? Is it falling? You know what we found is that residential values for the lower price points through the upper middle price points have stabilized. I, I wouldn't call them just bottomed out yet, but they've stabilized. And some areas are showing some moderate appreciation. What percentage of the properties do you think are traditional retail sales versus REO and short sale? For the homes that are active, the traditional sales, we'll call them equity sales, are about 70% of our market currently. Our short sales are right around, you know, just under 20%. And the lender-owned and the HUD sales, just, you know, under 15%, somewhere around 13%. Close for closed sales, this is an interesting, interesting information because although the traditional sales make up about 70% of the market, the closed sales, they only make up about 35% of, of the, you know, what's selling. And I think a good reason for that is that people are trying to go after the homes that tend to be price lower, like the foreclosure properties and short sales, which foreclosures make up about, oh, you know, just under 40% of the closed sales and short sales is hovering around 30% of the closed sales. So people are trying to go after those lower priced homes, understandably. Do you have a niche or a specialization? We don't really have a niche. We work a lot of past clients. Uh, referrals. We work with a lot of first-time home buyers. We work the luxury market, um, short sales, and we do also have some REO accounts. So each member of the team specializes in, in something. Okay, so you've done your specialization by team member. Yes. We take whose personality fits that best and run with it. List the different ways that you generate leads in business. We get a lot, like I mentioned, from our past clients. We've been in the business long enough that fortunately we get repeat clients and word of mouth through our past clients. We do a lot with our website and other websites like Yelp. And then Deg and I sit on five different relocation teams. We are no longer taking buyers through Relo, but we will still work with the listings. Those are our main ways of getting clients. Let's talk about past clients, repeat and referral, that represents more than half of your business. It does. How are you stimulating that business? We try and stay in touch with our past clients. We 
you know, hold events where we can see our past clients throughout the year. We are constantly um, sending marketing materials to them through either email or the mail. And we do pop buys as well, so we, yeah, we're just in touch with, with our past clients. We are, we've friended a lot of them on Facebook, so they see any posts that we do regarding you know, the business. So it's been, it's been fairly easy. Do you have a schedule for how often you try to stay in touch with a past client? You know, we use Top Producer, so it, and there are different action plans that we set up through Top Producer, depending on, on the type of client that they are, on how often that we want to be in contact with them. So that's how we maintain our leads and our past clients. How do you break out the type of client? When you say type of client, you have different categories for each of your past clients? We do. What are those categories? There would be a category A for somebody that we know has referred or will definitely refer. Category B is somebody that will absolutely refer if they if they knew how to refer. Um, and then a C is somebody that we, we think would refer or if they happen to run into somebody that happened to say, they're going to go out and really look for somebody to refer to us. But if somebody said to them, I want to sell my house or I want to buy a house, we know that they would refer us. And the people that we know are a Category A, obviously we try and stay in touch with them quite a bit more than SC. How often do you try to stay in touch with your A past clients? We try and stay in touch with them at least once a month. And sometimes they're hearing from us twice a month with an e-newsletter or um, if they subscribe to our blog, they'll hear, you know, they'll receive notices that we've posted something on our blog. So at least once, but usually twice a month, they hear from us. And how about Bs? Bs and Cs are once a month. They, they'll get something from us one, once a month. It may not be you know, blog post, or they may not get a phone call from us every month or every other month, but they definitely get our e-newsletter every month. Do you have any Ds, or do people fall off the list? People can fall off the list. Sometimes if we get return emails, obviously they're gone, or they can opt out of receiving information from us. And if they do that, then obviously they're out in their Ds. This database that you've accumulated, how many people are in the database? Gosh, at my last count, it's probably about 800. The 800, are they all past clients? Um, There's some past clients in sphere of influence. So people that we've done business with or vendors, things like that. And we get referrals from vendors that we use as well. So we try and stay in contact with them. In the list, how many of that 800 do you think are sphere of influence and vendors versus the past clients? I would say probably for past clients, we've probably got about 600 in there and probably 200 are sphere of influence and vendors. So you don't just throw everyone in your database that you come in to contact with, you're just putting in your past clients and your sphere of influence, these people that you feel will refer someone to you. In Top Producer, we have the ability to set them up as a lead. So we would set somebody up, let's say they called in on a sign call, in order to maintain contact with them, we would set them up as a lead. And then if they never come to fruition, then they drop off. So they never become part of our that database, right? The one-time leads would never come into the 800 group and be contacted once a month. No, no. They're set up on an action plan as a lead until we determine whether or not they're a solid lead or if they're just, you know, licky-loo calling. And so with those leads, we do have them set up on that drip campaign, which is a 33-touch 
campaign. And then after that, they'll fall off. Let's keep talking about these past clients and your sphere of influence. Let's now talk about how you're contacting them. You, you gave us kind of a, a broad brush. Let's get into those details. You mentioned that you have events. What type of events and how often? This past year, we've done certain events like, you know, we'll have dinners. We've done movie nights, things of that nature. We haven't done a lot of events, but, you know, they're they're sporadic throughout the year. Barbecues at our house. Yeah. We've done that. And like Doug said, movie nights are always fun. Let's talk about the movie night and how you would put that event together. Do you go out and rent out a movie theater? Yeah, there's actually a couple of uh, movie theaters here in town that are uh, that have set up these rooms for these kind of specific events and they you know one of them can fit uh, 50 people another one that we like can fit up to a hundred this isn't a huge giant movie theater with a thousand seats in it it's more intimate that's correct is this one of the theaters where they can serve you dinner and things like that or is it just the seats they can serve you dinner both of them can serve dinner. What we've done is hors d'oeuvres, you know, popcorn, soda, those kind of things. We've never had a large event where we've done a dinner. However, we have done more intimate uh, events at our house where we've had, you know, a group of past clients come in who we think are have similar interests. And then we've we've had a chef come in, prepare the meal, you know, they serve it, and we're able to just chat with our past clients who become friends. At those intimate meetings at your home, how many people are you inviting? Usually there's, you know, three couples, four couples at the most. Back to the movie theater, how many people typically show up? You know, I don't think we've ever had more than 50 people show up at any event. It's hard to get everybody's schedule you know, aligned for an event like that. You're probably sending out invitations to more than 50 and generating goodwill. How many invitations do you send out? Somewhere in the 100, 150 range. Now, that's not your entire database. How do you choose who you're going to send invitations out to? Most of them are, you know, eight clients that will, you know, that we're selecting to go to those events. Sometimes we have, we'll have a new client who we feel has expressed, you know, uh, an interest in getting together with us again. But it also depends on the movie, right? So with some of these, we've done children's movies, so we'll invite parents with children. And then other movies are adult-oriented and not family-oriented? Correct. I like to watch the uh, UFC fights, and so sometimes we've had events where we've invited, you know, other, other guys, actually guys and their wives, to come on over and uh, watch UFC night with us uh, in our home. On this movie night, how far out in advance do you send out an invitation? If we can do it, it's a couple of months. But if you do it any any shorter than a month, you're not going to get a lot of response. It's hard. People have already got their schedules planned. Usually a couple of months, though. Do you pick a day during the week or the weekend? We've done both. You know, again, it depends on the movie. Kids' movies tend to be on the weekend just because most parents want to try to get their kids in bed early and you can't, you can't do that during the week. How do you send the invitation out? Are you sending it out by mail or by email or both? 
we actually do it by both. By mail, usually we'll hit them with an email, and then we usually follow up with a phone call. You got to keep contacting. People are busy, and we, we understand that. How many contacts do you make before the event? Generally three. Mail, email, and then a phone call right before the event to just confirm. So you start with mail a little more than a month out, and then does the email go out maybe half the time to the event, and then the phone call the week of the event? How do you time that? Correct. Yep, that's that's about right. How much does it cost to rent out one of these smaller movie theaters? Again, it depends on the um, on the venue, but for one of the venues that we go to, it's fifteen hundred dollars, and they'll provide snacks and you know popcorn, soda. So it's a reasonable expense. And remembering this is something that creates a tremendous amount of goodwill, gives us an opportunity before the event to say hi, thanks for coming, you know, thanks for using us to help you to buy or sell your house. It's a great opportunity. It's totally worth it. But in general, $1,500, we can usually get movie theater rented. How about the event itself? Does everybody just walk in and sit down and watch the movie? Do you do a presentation at the beginning or the end? You know, as people roll in, of course, we greet them. And then after they've mixed and mingled a little bit, right before the movie, we're, we're chatting, just saying, hi, thank you very much for, for coming. You know, glad you could make it. This is a little event to say thank you to all of you for allowing us to help you to purchase or sell your home. Hope you enjoy the movie. And it's very informal. It's just a thank you. We don't do any hard sell while they're there. I think they, you know, most people get it. It's just a thank you. And so we're not trying to mix too much business in with that. Do you say anything at the end or does everyone just disperse? Pretty much disperse, but we thank everybody for coming and have a great rest of your week. There's nothing else after that. Is there a handout given any time during the event? I can't remember an event where we've done a handout, but that's a great idea. Information on short sales or the market would be probably would be great. Or another gift. Or another gift. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Great idea. Do you have any sponsors or affiliates that help you with this? You know, we haven't in the past. It's tricky because we always try to stay out of trouble. And of course, there's, you know, RESPA that you have to deal with. So, no, we've never had any sponsors help us with these events. And so I assume that the dinners and the barbecue at your house are are similar in that they're very informal and you follow that same kind of procedure where you're just chatting. That's exactly right. That kind of goes right to the way Kirsten and I are. We're just um, we're pretty informal, like fairly relaxed, and that's the way we want our clients to feel. Any other events that you have done over the years for your past clients that we haven't talked about? You know, I'll give you an example of of one where we just did an invite to a number of our clients. It was a specialized list of clients. Uh, Cobalt Banker does this thing. It's only our second year we've done it, but it's called our Snowflake Soiree. And with this Snowflake Soiree, we were able to invite any of our past clients who also own a business, what they do is they come to this event, they set up their table with whatever it is that they sell. There's no cost for our clients. All they have to do is bring a 
a gift valued at $25 to donate to the St. Mary's Food Bank. We just did that. The event is actually coming up next week. So we called some of our clients. We actually, actually on this event, we just emailed and then followed up with a phone call because it came up pretty fast and just said, hey, you know, if you'd like to, to join us. And so we have people who sell jewelry. We have people who do nails. We have people who uh, are attorneys who have been invited to this event. And this event is put on by your company or by you? It's put on by Cobalt Banker. We'll be there, but Cobalt Banker is the one that sets it up. Let's go back to following up with your past clients. Uh, we talked about events. Do you smell out items to your past clients? Yes, we do. As a matter of fact, we're getting ready. I'm, I'm actually looking at a stack of, uh, <laughs> of things we're getting ready to send out. They are the calendars for 2012. How often do you mail things out and what are you mailing out? At the end of the year, we mail out the calendars. We also, for the first part of the year, we'll mail out everybody's head so that they have that from last year. Why would you mail out the HUD? So they have it for their taxes. Do you put a cover letter on that? Mm-hmm, we do. Yep, and thank them again for purchasing a home with us and helping with our success for the that past year. And then different times throughout the year, we'll mail. Sometimes we do a 4th of July mailing where we'll send items of value out to people. Sometimes we go out to our past clients' homes and drop off pumpkins um, throughout the year. We always mail for their birthdays, home purchase anniversary. We mail out cards. We have send-out cards. They send us reminders and let us know when, after we've been put all the dates that we need to, we'll get reminders that it's somebody's birthday or it's their anniversary or their home purchase anniversary. We send out to our, our clients after they close a questionnaire for them to fill out so that we have all that, in, you know, the important dates for them. We even get dogs and cat birthdays. This is a questionnaire you send out right after you close? Right after we close, we'll send out a questionnaire, and that'll give them a, a space to do a testimonial as well, and they can check a box to, to say whether or not we can share that on our website. And, um, and then the questionnaire will answer questions about you know their kids' names and their birth dates. And sometimes we'll, do, we'll send out updates to past clients that we haven't received questionnaire from in the last three years because it's been three years since they've closed. We know they're still in the same house. And we may send an update out to that group and incentivize them to send it back by the first person that sends it back will get Starbucks gift card or movie tickets or we'll draw out of the people that we get back and it has to be back by whatever day for a prize. And uh, we get a pretty good response. What kind of questions are you asking on that questionnaire? What kind of information do you want to know? We ask for who's in the household and usually we know that but we just you know, it's a blank questionnaire, who's in the household, how old are they, you know, when are their birthday kind of things, when's your anniversary, and it's, you know, they can fill in what they want to fill in and, and leave blank what they don't want to answer, and pretty much everybody fills out the whole thing. And then we send out something else with that that is the testimonial, request for a testimonial, and we usually get that back as well. Are you getting the birthdays of the children? Yes, and like I said, sometimes pets. You send birthday cards to everyone in the family? Yes. So that increases your touches per year? Exactly. Yes, it does. What do you send out? Do you send out a card or a letter? 
It's a card, and we have a company that we use called Send Out Cards. You just go online, pick the card, and we've written out our handwriting. So you can select, do you want it in your own handwriting, or do you want some other font? And it mails it right out. I think they're based in Utah. So they mail it right out from there, and, and they're nice cards, and they look like they're handwritten. And so that probably goes out the week of their birthday. Mm-hmm. Yep. Our um, reminder is set for a week before so that we can go ahead and um, and it emails us, which is awesome, so you don't have to log in and look every day. It'll email us when we have a reminder in there. Do you have to initiate the send out of the card, or does it just happen automatically every year once you get it started? You could have it happen automatically. We choose to go in and pick the cards, so we initiate it. You're probably sending out a lot of cards each month. We do, yes. <laughs> How many do you think you're sending out? That's a really good question because we don't actually send them. <laughs> the transaction manager will send them out for us. So I would say, because I see the emails that come through, you know, it varies, but we've got to be sending out at least 25 cards a month on average. You mentioned you're also sending out emails. How often are you sending emails to your past clients and what kind of information is in there? We send out our e-newsletter every month, and that's helpful hints around the house, things that may be happening in the market. Sometimes there's movie reviews in that. And then our blog, if they subscribe to our blog, they'll get an email every time a new blog post or a new blog is posted. And then we also send out Lowe's coupons. When we receive those for our clients, we'll get, we'll get those sent out. And that's a program through Lowe's that we can sign up for and we have when you have a closing, and it will just send helpful tips as well and coupons. You sign that up with Lowe's, and then that goes out by email, and it has your name and Lowe's name on it? Correct. Yep. How often do they receive information? I think they probably get at least once a month or every other month. Do you also make phone calls to your past clients? We do, and we have that set up through our top producer. So, again, depending on what type of a client they are, they'll be set up on an action plan. So it may pop up with a to-do of mail them this letter or call them to set up an appointment or to follow up on how they're doing in their home or if we know that they had something coming up, that they were up for a job promotion or being considered for a job transfer based on the last conversation we had with them, then we'll put that in our action plan and set up an appointment to contact them. Your standard course of action with a past client, do you call them right after the closing or a certain number of days after the closing? We do call them within like three days of closing, let them get settled. Sometimes we're stopping by when we know that they're moving in with water. Sometimes we'll bring paper towels and cleaning supplies to their house on the day that we know that they're moving in, especially during the summer here. It's so hot that if you come by with a case of water, they're just thrilled. Do you put a label or anything on the water or just bring a case of water? No, we just bring a case of water. No, but we really like that idea though, Mike. You try to contact them within the first couple of days after the closing. And then what's the schedule of this phone contact after that? You said it's based on the type of lead. They are an A lead. Are you trying to call them monthly or quarterly? With our A clients, I'm touching base with them. I usually, if, if it's a listing, um, I'm usually doing the phone call. And I'll call an A client back 
on a monthly basis. I'm at least making a phone call. So you can usually find me in the mornings. If you're going to be successful in real estate, you have to time block, right? So because time can get away from you. So usually you can find me in the morning making phone calls to to past clients. So A clients are going to get, I've got them set up on top producer and they'll get a phone call once a month. Hey, how you doing? Uh, anything I can help you with? Any things around the house that have that have happened that you need help with? Just kind of how you doing? Kind of phone calls. You know, obviously, you know, birthdays. Sometimes I'll also make birthday calls as well. That the card goes out, but I'll send. I'll uh, make uh, birthday calls. B clients and C clients. You know, I'm. It's it's an automatic setup to be honest with you. So and we've set it up a while back. I would say it's probably every two to three months I'm making a phone call to one of one of our B or C clients um, just to say, hey, how you doing? On that initial call that you make back right after closing, have you ever asked, hey, how's everything going? And things were not going well. They have problems in the home. No, um, Mike, every time we call, everything is perfect. <laughs> they love the house and there's no issues. Now you hit it right on the head too. It, it's good to call. It's good to call because sometimes there are issues and they, a lot of people don't know, even though we always tell them, hey, even though we've closed escrow now, we're still here. We're still your realtor and we still want to help you if you have any issues. We, you know, we always remind them when they close, remember since you bought a house with us, you have access, free access to our concierge service. So sometimes our clients will find out that they have just contacted our concierge service and they've gotten some help. Uh, for example, they one of the appliances went out and they used our concierge service to get a an appliance repair person. But no, it's um, we call and a lot of people they don't they don't want to bother you. So it's it's really good to call. Like Kirsten said, you know about three days certainly within the week after they've closed, depending on the client and when they're moving in, just to touch base. Because a lot of times you can actually help them. They've had a little issue that, oh, that just happened, we'll just send our guy out. You do send out a repair person to assist them. Do you have a budget set aside for that? Will you send it out if it's a small item or a big item? Or uh, how do you decide whether you're going to get financially involved with something after the closing? There is no budget set aside for it. And it's not very often. And that's probably the reason we don't have a budget set up for it. But, you know, every once in a while, you know, if it's, if it's a minor thing where, where we know that it should have been done, I'll give you an example. We just had a client who seller did not leave a key for a particular lock. So we sent our guy out to go ahead and take care of that key firm. It's not expensive, but it generates a tremendous amount of goodwill. Okay, because I think that's probably one of the fears of some agents out there is they think, well, boy, I don't want to call right away because there could be some really awful things going on, and I'm not sure I want to get back involved in that. And you're saying that it's, it's rare that it happens, that it's a big issue, and they're usually grateful that you called. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And I, I think if you, as a realtor, if you go into it with an attitude of, gee, I don't want to call them because there might be something wrong, it would be, it's actually, we're thinking the opposite. 
it, we want to call them to make sure everything's all right. And if there is something wrong, we want to fix it. And I think that, to a great extent, has helped us to build our business because people know they can come to us and ask for help if they need it. You mentioned this concierge service. What is that? Is that an outside service that you're hiring? Is that you internally? What do you mean by that? So Cobalt Banker, it's a Cobalt Banker department, and it's called our concierge department. There's actually someone who answers the phone at the concierge department. Cobalt Banker keeps a list of contractors in different areas, roofers, tilers, carpet people, house cleaners, things of that nature, and then also uh, lifestyle kind of vendors as well, furniture, things of that nature. So if a client has a need for a roofer, all they have to do is either go on to our concierge website and they can select what city they're in and what particular need they have, and it'll pop up with a list of vendors in that category. So I don't know, here in the area, there's a, there's another company called Angie's List, and so it's similar to that. All of these vendors are vetted, which is wonderful. So they're already vetted for us. And then the other nice thing about our concierge service is that they offer a discount. The vendors, as because they're a member of our concierge, one of the deals that they agree to is that they will offer a discount some offer 10%, 15%. Yeah, they vary. The other nice thing about our concierge service is that you're going to get a discount card that's good for discounts at different restaurants, Lowe's, Home Depot, you know, other other places. So you can actually carry the card and get discounts, which is great for us too because it's a reminder every time they pull that car, card out Doug and Kirsten helped us to buy or sell our house. And then the other feature of the concierge service is that if, if you want, the buyer or seller can use our concierge service to help them to set up or turn off their utilities. Pretty robust service. You mentioned they can pull out a card. Is your name on the card? That's another good idea. It's not. It's actually uh, comes directly from the concierge department, and it has Cobalt Banker concierge. But but we're reminding them several times throughout the transaction. You have access to our concierge department, so I think you know buyers and sellers pretty much know. Oh, this concierge is coming from Doug and Kirsten. And honestly, a lot of times when people really do believe that it's actually our concierge, even though we do make it clear it's a Coldwell Banker thing, they forget about it because it becomes kind of internalized. I'm working with Doug and Kirsten, and they offer a concierge service. Do you as the agents pay any additional for that service? No, we don't. When you're making these follow-up calls to your past clients, Do you have follow a script? Is there any kind of question or statement you want to make to try to generate business? Or is it just, hey, how are you? You know, Kirsten, like we said in the beginning, Kirsten's been in real estate for 19 years. I've been in real estate for 11 years. Yes, they are scripted. But we we got these scripts when we first started in real estate. So now they're just, they have just become a part of who we are. And so while it's, it's not a script, it certainly 
it actually originated certainly like that. Most of them are just very casual. They sound, I'm sure, very casual conversations about how you're doing. Is there anything we can help you with? And then to answer your question, we do often say, and just remember if we can help, if you know anybody who we can help who needs to buy or sell a house, you know, let us know. We'd love to help them. That is part of one of the things we do. As a matter of fact, it's probably to my children, it's probably become, become an irritant because uh, when I'm in the grocery store, if I'm having dinner, if you know, if I'm in uh, Home Depot, I'm, uh, I'm usually asking if I can help you, let me know. Are there any other tips that you could give our listeners on how to generate or stimulate business from your past clients? If you're a new realtor, one of the fastest ways to a buck in real estate is through open houses, right? It's through a buyer. So if you're trying to build business and make money, open houses are, are a good way to do that. Sphere of influence is a, an incredible tool to generate business. And I think too few agents utilize it. And I think the reason a lot of agents, especially new agents, don't utilize it is because they don't want to, they don't want to bother their family. They don't want to bother their friends, but your friends and family want to help you. So, so, you know, if you just can, as a realtor, if you can just remember that these are people who know, like, and trust you usually. And so you, you should ask, ask for the business from those people. So Doug, when you're talking to your family, do you drop that line at the end of your conversations? <laughs> I've been known to. <laughs> there's a there's a great story. I'm going to let Kirsten tell the story because it's it brings the point home. No, I on every conversation I don't say anything, but to be honest, most of my family they're all, they're asking how are you doing? And when they ask me, how are you doing and how's business? And sometimes I will say, yeah, and, you know, just remember if you know anybody, you know, even back in Maryland where I'm from, where a lot of my family is, I'll say, hey, if you know anybody, just remember I can help them because I can refer them to a top agent in their area. So, but Kirsten has a great story. I'm going to let Kirsten tell this story. So I said my parents own a lot of real estate, and my my dad and his and his uh, younger brother own their company together and own quite a number of the properties together. So the the two couples, and I'll hear stories all the time that my dad and my uncle bought something in California. I'm like hello, hello, remember me? So <laughs> this is about probably three or four years after I got into the business. I sent a letter to my dad and his brother saying, you know, dear Mr. Lundgren, <laughs> my name is Kirsten, and at the time it was a different last name, and I'm in real estate, and let me explain how real estate agents make money, <laughs> and I explained how we help buyers, we help sellers, but we can also refer, <laughs> and uh, then I thanked them and told them that they could contact me anytime, so I never heard a response. But <laughs> Have you been able to arrange any referrals after that? Oh my, not, not, you know what, and anything that they purchase out there, the two of them together, no, but anything that my dad purchases, then yes. Let's move on in our marketing quest here. You mentioned that you generate business from your website. What are you doing there to generate business? We have a great search engine. Our marketing guy has really helped us to 
get our website to be ranking higher on all the search engines. People find us and use our search tool quite often to look for homes or to try and get the value of their property. That leads immediately captured and contacted. We're really working that. I think we've received quite a number of leads over last year from that that have really turned into something. Plus, Doug was on HGTV, House Hunters, and there's a link to that episode on our website too. So I think that that's driven traffic to our website as well. Sometimes, Mike, we will, all of a sudden, we'll get an email from someone that says, hi, I've been looking on your website for the last year using your multiple listing system portal, which is great. I'm now ready to buy a house. Would you contact me? It's just the most amazing thing and wonderful. Your website, is this a website that you bought out of a box or did you develop it yourself? We had a box website and we never really got any leads from it. And then we ended up developing one through WordPress and that has made a huge, huge difference. Did you all set that up or do you have someone in your team that set that up, the WordPress website? We helped, but there's us and our lead buyer's agent who also takes the lead on our marketing staff, Joshua. But also we used a company that we've been using for a long time. It's called Red 7, and that's actually who we... we, They wrote the program. They wrote the program, and also we lease all of our computers from them as well. But they have this other arm of their company that is website design, so we use them. Was Red 7 a local company there or a national company? No, they're local. They help you with all your technology needs, including this website design? Yes. You mentioned... Yelp. What is Yelp? Yelp is a site that started in San Francisco, California, and it's a review site. So people can look on Yelp and find businesses nearby where they are, or they can put in a city. Let's say you were going to be going to Los Angeles. So you put in Los Angeles and look up restaurants, particular types of restaurants. You could find businesses that are nearby where you are because it finds out your location and then can look for businesses that are nearby. We developed a page on Yelp, and we are getting a lot of business from that. It's like a directory. Correct. And the nice thing about Yelp is that anybody can review you, and you, can't, you cannot manipulate these recommendations or these comments that people put onto the, onto the site. So for us, even when we're driving around, if we've decided, you know what, let's go to dinner, we look on Yelp and find out, hey, what have people said about this restaurant? And on Yelp, they can also put on tips, right? So if they've had a great steak at a place, they'll, you'll see these tips about, oh, this particular meal is really good. But for us, it's been great because buyers and sellers who go onto the site know that hey, these are honest reviews of this group. Did you have to pay for your directory listing on Yelp? No, and you can. You can pay for it, and there are people that do pay, and I'm not sure what more that gets you, but we're doing well without having to pay a thing. How much business do you think you've generated from Yelp? Oh, gosh, I would say that we probably get, and anybody that does anything with Internet leads, we probably get three to five solid uh, buyer leads a month, 
These are people that are ready to go out and start looking right now, and they're at a higher price point. And so by higher price point right now, you know, with some of the relocation leads that we get, we're, we're getting $100,000 buyers. These are two hundred to $400,000 and up buyers that are ready to go. And they're very savvy, very internet savvy. They've usually come to us with their loan in place and know where they want to live. It's not, I'm moving to Phoenix and I don't know if I want to live in the West Valley or the East Valley. Could you show me both? Which we try not to go West just because we know the East Valley is so much better. These people know, I want to be in the East Valley. Or we have had them, a couple say, you know, I, I may go to the West Valley, I may be in the East Valley. And when we tell them that we specialize in the East Valley and we can find somebody to help them in the West Valley, they say, never mind, we want to work with you, so we'll buy in the East Valley. They're very loyal. How did you make sure that you have a responsive directory listing? What tips do you have for filling that out that has, seems to have made it so successful? Pretty much a questionnaire that you fill out. So you put your logo on there and describe what it is that you do, what type of a business that you are, and so you'll be in that section of Yelp. So when somebody looks up real estate in this area, that will be one of the names that pops up. And then you get ranked, kind of like how you would be ranked on your website, I suppose. You're ranked by the stars that you get your reviews. So because our reviews are what they are, we're one of the first ones that pops up. How many reviews do you think you have on there? I can tell you, I'm, I'm actually looking at it, uh, we have 21. Have you ever received a negative review on there? No, thank goodness. And that's important too, uh, because like I said, these are not referrals. They're from anybody who's done business with us, not just the happy ones, right? So anybody who's done business with us can go onto this site whether they feel they've had a good experience or bad experience. And fortunately, every one of the 21 responses we've gotten, I think every one of them is a five-star. It's ranked one to five stars. Have you tried to stimulate that? Have you tried to ask any of your past clients to write a review? Yelp is very interesting. If they see that somebody just joined Yelp to review one business, they will not wait that review. So if we were to go to all of our past clients and say, hey, you should join Yelp, and we're on Yelp, and you should review us and tell everybody what a great job we did. If they're only joining to review us, then that won't do anything for us. So if it's a past client that we received through Yelp, clearly when we're wrapping up the transaction, we're going to say to them, you know, we hope that we did a great job for you, and we hope that you will give us a nice review on Yelp. Okay, so just a nice little mention at the end if you've recognized that that was the source of the business. Right, and we do send out a thank you to everybody that closes with us. So when you know that it is a, a Yelp transaction, then, then we do mention that. Because otherwise I was wondering how they make it back to the site after the transaction to make a review. Well, and again, the Yelpers, they are called, are very, very loyal. And they they absolutely are on it every day. It's almost like a Facebook following. So people that Yelp are very loyal to it and, and are on every day. So they will go back and review whether I think we prompted them to or not. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. 
open Google and search RealG TV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. How soon after you posted the directory listing did you receive a referral? You know, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I do know that we found our garage door repair guy on Yelp. And when I called him, he said, oh, I just posted that today. So there you go. How soon after you put up your directory listing do you think you received your first review? Oh, gosh. I think that we got our first review. In fact, I'm sure that we posted our web page after we found out that one of our clients was a Yelper and then got a review almost immediately because we found out that they were on Yelp. And they said, oh, you're not, but we would review you if you were. Okay, so that's how you got pulled into it. It turns out to be a great move. It was. How long have you been listed on there? See, our first review, it's funny, I just pulled these up. We get uh, customer service awards for everybody who sends in a, a recommendation or a, fills out the review from Coldwell Banker. And so the other day it dawned on me that, gee, we have all of these Yelp reviews. So I literally just printed that out so I could give it to, you know, give it to the front office. But it's been about a year and a half Let's talk about some other ways that you generate business. You mentioned relocation and relocation teams. What's going on with your relocation business? Well, like I said, we no longer take the buyers out. We just made a decision not to to work with any relocation buyers through the relocation companies. So we're just working with the listings. And we're receiving, I don't know, I would say um, one to two a month from them. And these are people that are being corporate transferred corporate relocated to other areas. Yeah, we're getting about one to two a month from them. And we are on five different relocation teams. When you say relocation teams, what does that mean? Cardis is probably the largest relocation company. So let's say Boeing. Boeing hires Cardis to do their all their relocation. Anybody that's moving, let's say with Boeing, would, would go through Cardis. Or Serva Relocation is another large Reload company that we work with, Weikert, Altair Global, and then USAA is through Cardis. Um, it's an affinity in there for military. So if a military person, somebody that uh, banks with USAA, goes online and fills out a mortgage questionnaire, they will contact them and ask them if they've heard about the Movers Advantage program. Would they like to be put in touch with an agent to help them sell their home or to look for homes? And then they get kind of a cashback bonus, I guess, for allowing a relocation agent from USAA to contact them and help them. So there is a cost to us. You pay a, a relocation fee to the company when you receive a relocation client. You mentioned you've stopped assisting buyers. Why did you make that decision? With the Yelp added in, and then we have a couple of other companies that are less of a cost to us, it just made more sense to not work with the relocation piece from our company. So it it is a pretty hefty, some relocation companies charge 35 to 40%, and then your split from the company would be like a 50-50 instead of your regular split. So if you were at a, whatever your split is with your company, 70%, 80%, 85%, um, it would drop to 50-50 if it was company-generated lead. So you might be working for as little as 30% of the final number. Right. So if it's a $3,000 total commission, we would only be getting $1,000. Yay. And so it just wasn't worthwhile to continue to work with the buyers for such a small fee. Correct. 
And usually if you do not want to work with both sides, you know, buyer and listing, you don't get either. But we've been with the company for so long and our conversion rate is so high that they are, were fine to allow us to do that. I heard you mention HGTV. What was that all about? Okay, so one of our buyers, and this is somebody that has known us and we've known for quite a number of years, somebody that our oldest son, Joshua, went to school with. She contacted us and wanted to purchase a home, and Joshua works for us. She wanted to purchase a home, and she and her fiancé said, I hope you don't mind, but we filled out the application to um, be on HGTV, and they said that everything looked good, and once we found a house, to contact them back. So would you participate? And we said, sure. So we went through the process of finding their house. They ended up buying a REO property, and it was they were on their honeymoon when we were actually closing. So we were touch and go on whether it was going to close in time to make the episode. But they said once they got under contract, they had to do a video. And once they did their video, they asked us to do a video. So Doug and I spoke on the video. Then they heard us say on the video that our son worked with us. So they wanted a video, a very informal conversation over coffee between Doug and Josh. So he was saying, oh, they're going to pick Josh. They want the young kid, you know, because he would relate better to the buyer because they're the same age. So all of our tapes went in and they called back and they said, we want Doug to do it. Then they go back and film the, they call them the decoy houses, you know, the two that they didn't pick and then the house that they picked. And they're actually closed on the house when they film. They actually own it already and they're just not moved in yet. Is the house that you see on the television the house they actually buy? That is the house that they are, have already purchased, right. But the other two that you're showing are not. They're decoys. Right. Decoy houses, they call them. And it all happens after the fact. Exactly. So Doug really tried to show two homes that they saw and were considering at the same time that they purchased you know, and found their home, but we could not find two that they saw. They were already sold by then, or I think one HOA wanted some ridiculous amount of money, and HGTV said, found, find another house. So we found two other decoy houses, and um, it all worked out well. They were able to hold off from moving in, which we were concerned. They were in a rental, and we didn't know if they were going to get the couple of extra days, and it kind of all came together at the end, a lot of moving pieces, but it worked out. It was fun. Was it fun or scary? It was not scary. It's, it's amazing. I honestly thought I would be nervous doing it because, I mean, you've got a camera crew that's following you around and a producer who's directing you. And I'd, I've done that one other time before, not in real estate. But I, I was honestly, I, I thought I'd be nervous. But once I did it, it was basically I was just doing what I do, which is, you know, helping a client. And it came across, I think, very naturally. It was fun. How long did it take? How much time did you have to invest? Good question. From the time that they actually contacted us to the time it actually aired was about five months, something like that. But you know, part of that time was the interview time, and then part of that time was the house had to close. So that was you know, a month. The filming was five days. Yeah. I would not have guessed five days. It was a lot of take, retake, take. I think they walked through a dining room 22 times. And the husband buyer said it too as they were walking through. Hi, my name is, and this is the 22nd time I've walked through this dining room. 
it gave me a great empathy for actors because there was a lot of the producer would stop us and say, oh, that was perfect. Okay, now let's do it again. <laughs> and this time, and uh, so yeah, it was. But of course, the actors make the big bucks. Well, did you get paid? Good question. No, I didn't get paid directly. But any agent who is trying to, would like to build their business, this would be another way to do it because you can go on to HGTV's site and ask to to become an HGTV agent, or you can have your clients do it. And although they didn't pay me, I think we've received a lot of business as a result of it, either from clients who've looked onto our websites, who've seen the HGTV video on our website to, you know, actually, this is a funny story. One of the, the decoy houses, as we'll call them, the house didn't sell. The show had already aired, and I gave both of the other houses, I gave them a copy of the HGTV video so they could see it just for as a thank you. But one of those decoy houses, she called me up and said, Hey, um, my house hasn't sold. I'm I'm uh, I'm not going to relist. My my listing is canceling, and I wonder if you would come and help me sell my house. And so Kirsten and I did. We went out, uh, we listed the house, and we sold it. So it was it was great side business. I, I'll bet you we've received directly from the show. I'll bet you we've received uh, I don't know five five or six sales as a direct result of it, but then I don't know how many others who have seen us on the website, on our website, have looked at that and gone, hey, let's use, let's use them. Did you get a copy of that video clip to use for your marketing, or do you just link to it to their site? You're not allowed to link to it to their site. They tell you exactly how you can do it. They did give us a copy of the video, and they gave us uh, a clip that we could put onto our website. You can't link directly back to HGTV. But then they they recently did something else for us, which was they gave us some stickers, which showed I appeared on HGTV House Hunters. They've given us a a link to uh, front door where we can put our profile, etc. So they've done some other they've done some other nice things for us. How long ago was that that this aired? It aired in September of 2010. And it's airing all the time. We just got calls from the East Coast saying, I just saw you. My dad likes to tease him and says, you're a rerun now. Talking about marketing, what was your worst marketing effort that you tried and failed? I have a thought about that, and I think Kirsten has a thought about that as well. I'll tell you one of the things I think was our worst marketing idea was we were approached by uh, someone who wanted to put us on shopping carts. And although that might be successful in certain parts of the country, in certain cities, I could see where that could work. We spent a couple thousand dollars doing it and never it never generated anything. We did it for about a year. I think with most marketing ideas, you've got to continue to do it for a long time before you really start to see results. So I'm not saying it can't work. And maybe if we had continued to plunk, you know, a couple thousand dollars a year on it for years and people over years saw us, oh, wow, there's that couple. They're always on the shopping carts. We might have done something from it. 
but for us over the year, it never generated any sales, so we decided to stop it. And then Kirsten, what did you think, Kirsten? Uh, we did some internet leads from a, a website that they charged you for the lead, and they never amounted to anything. In fact, I think we canceled that after 30 days, and the maximum leads that they would send was seven for the month, and so we were billed for all seven of them, and none of them were. Luckily, we realized fairly quickly that that none of them were going to turn out to be anything. Now let's move our attention to short sales. Kirsten, I understand you're the short sale manager. I am. What does that mean? What do you do in that capacity? And by manager, I manage myself. I handle the short sales. Doug will go out on the listing appointments. And before, you know, the team grew to what it is now. And before short sales were such a big part of our business, Doug and I went on all the listing appointments together. You know, we used to work with the buyers before we had our buyer's agents. So we did all of it. But now, since short sale is such a big part of the market, we really needed to have somebody that was just here concentrating on that. And we did have, at one point, Joshua handled that as part of his transaction management. And then Daniel handed, handled that as when he was our listing manager. But we needed somebody to focus just on short sales. So that's what I've been doing for probably a good part of this year, most of this year. So from the time that we get the listing in and it goes under contract, I'm I'm the one that's putting together the package to send to the bank and negotiating with the with the banks. How are you finding these short sale clients? These short sale clients are finding us. We know a lot of people that buy the notice of default from the different lists and stuff and we don't do that. We through our past clients, people that hear of somebody that wants to sell their home and they don't think that they can sell it for what they owe, uh, we'll put them in contact with us. Other short sale Clients will refer somebody that they know of that's in trouble to us. We have a lot of attorney attorneys that we know that will refer people to us that contact them first. So those are the, the main ways that we get our short sale clients. So basically, this is all business that's being referred into you, and you're not actively going out to try to find short sales. Correct. Let's talk about the short sale process Who's actually going out and meeting the client at their home and getting the listing? Doug does. He goes out and meets with them, and then they'll determine, usually before he goes, he knows that they're a short sale, and he'll bring all the paperwork that he needs to and have a conversation with them on the phone, letting them know that he believes that they are, and they usually know that they will be. And then while he's out there with them, he is asking them all the questions that you need to ask with a short sale on whether or not they are going to participate get us the paperwork that we need, be available, leave the utilities on, uh, maintain the property, all of that. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get to how motivated are they? Are they committed to the short sale? Because, And not just them, but also if they have a tenant in the property, is the tenant on board with it? Because in the case where a seller is not willing to participate in the short sale, they're not willing to cooperate with getting the paperwork, if I feel that the tenant is not going to be cooperative, we won't take the listing. How do you price the home? What's the art to that? You said it right. There is an art to it. We do not take overpriced listings. Uh, As a general rule for anybody, uh, whether it's a traditional equity sale, an REO, or a short sale, 
with short sale clients, we also, there's a lot of realtors who will price their properties, their short sale properties way below market. I don't think that's a good strategy. Kirsten and I believe that, you know, you have to get the bank on board too. The bank will do a broker price opinion, at least one, sometimes two, depending on the value of the house, they might even do an appraisal which we've seen. We had a $1.5 million listing where the bank went out and did an appraisal on the property. The bank is going to know the value of that property. And so as a realtor, what we do is we make sure we're pricing it at the market, but maybe just a little bit below the market, not a lot below the market, but just below the market. Uh, and again, depending on the price point, you know, that could be, you know, $1,000 or it could be, you know, $20,000 in the case of a $1.5 million house. And also depending on the condition of the property. So you're going to look at it just like you would a regular traditional sale. If your home has tons of upgrades and it's, you know, one of the best homes on the block, whether it's a short sale or traditional, you're going to price it accordingly. If it's trashed, short sale or traditional wouldn't matter. You're going to price it accordingly. When you're looking at the comps for this valuation, are you looking at retail sales or are you looking at other short sales or REO sales? We're looking at the entire market. So we're going to look at the neighborhood and the surrounding area, you know, look at the entire entire area and see how many REO properties are there, how many short sale properties are there, how many traditional sales and gauge it like that. Once you've established this price and and you start marketing it, you'll find a buyer. Do you make any kind of special instructions to the buyer or the buyer's agent before you start negotiating that contract? We do like to use the title company that we are most familiar with that we know does a great job. Once you get down to the end and you're trying to get HUD approval from these lenders, if the title company isn't doesn't have somebody that's experienced with short sales, that can blow the deal. So we try and get them to use the title company that we like to use. That doesn't always work, but that would be our main instruction. Uh, we also let them know that this is a process, and we want to make sure that their buyers are on board for the process. That it's you know, although they say that they're willing to wait the several months that it takes, I think all of us in real estate these days have found that two to three months to four months to five months, even though they say they have no time frame in which they need to be in a home and they're very patient, even investors, we all know that that everybody's idea of patience is different <laughs> once you're already down the road two to three and four months. So we try to make sure that their their buyers are really going to stick in. In some cases, what we'll do is we will ask them to make the earnest money non-refundable for up to 90 days. Uh, most short sales are going to take 90 days, most of them or more. So that really gets to how motivated is the buyer or are they just throwing offers out there on multiple properties and we can't have that with our seller because if we have a buyer who just hangs in there for a couple of months and then cancels the contract and moves on it takes our seller that much closer to potential foreclosure so it's not fair to our our seller as well Are you finding in your market that the offers, when they're finally negotiated, the price is close to the market value, or is it coming in somewhere below that? Usually when it's our listing, we're pretty close. 
I think we've had counteroffers of $2,500 from the bank, and it's like, really, $2,500? But for whatever reason, they think they need that additional $2,500. But we're pretty, we are pretty close to our list price to what it sells for and what the bank will take. Kirsten, let's go into your area of expertise, this getting a package approved with the bank. Agents, of course, have stressed over this and trying to make it happen. So we're going to try to figure out what's your tips for success. I use a program called Short Sale Commander. It's similar to a top producer, but what I like about Short Sale Commander is it will create the package for me. So you take all the documents that you know you're going to need and you upload them into this system and then you click the Create Package button, and it's amazing because it will put a header and a footer on the bottom with your client's name, the loan number, and the date, and then it uh, generates a cover letter. Then you send that all over to the short sale department. I would say to the agents out there that are just starting in short sales or even agents that have done several of them and, and have a hard time getting the package accepted, make sure it's complete. Make sure that it's you know legible. That's the main the main thing. And then follow up once you send it the next day to make sure that they received it. And I think that a lot of agents don't do that. How do you make sure that someone at the bank is responding to you? I take notes. So when I call in after, let's say, I've, I've submitted a package today and I'm going to call in tomorrow, I know who I spoke with. I know what time I spoke with them. I ask them who they think the file will be assigned to. Sometimes they will know that information. Sometimes they don't. I try and call back every week until I get somebody. And at some point, and it varies for different banks and different investors, I get that aha answer, which is, oh, I see that file's been assigned to Jerry. Oh, really? Jerry who? (laughs) So then you get that, you know, who's Jerry and what's his extension. And normally that person on the phone will give you all that information because they don't know any better. And then I'll try and get who's Jerry's supervisor in case he's ever not there. I try and get all that information from that person. And I found that the negotiators, when you first speak with them, when you finally do get that call from them or they do answer your phone call, they're great on the first several phone calls until we get really close to short sale approval. Then they kind of fall off and you can't find them anymore. And then I dial for dollars. (laughs) I will dial extension, 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 trying to find somebody that answers a phone. Once you figure out their codes, you know, if it's a five-digit extension or it's a seven-digit extension, you can usually find somebody. You'll just start calling for anybody who will pick up the phone? Yep. And once they pick up the phone, what do you say? Hi, I, I don't know if you can help me. I'm not sure if this is the right department. I was trying to reach, and then I tell them who that is. But I've already left them a voicemail, so please don't put me back through. Is there somebody else in that department I can talk to? And usually they will get me through to somebody else. Sometimes I call back into the main like loss mitigation customer service line or foreclosure. If you get automatically, once you put your loan number in, if it's already in foreclosure status, you'll go to the foreclosure department. Usually if you get somebody from the customer service line for that department, they will get you through to somebody. Any other tips to make sure that your package gets approved? I can't stress enough that it has to be complete and it has to be legible. So find out what they're looking for in the package so that you get it all to them. And if you're running more than 30 days, I would make sure that you're getting from your clients their updated pay stubs, their updated bank statement, because you know that the negotiator is going to ask for that. So have something in your 
tickler file to remind you that every 30 days you need to get their update unless you know you have your approval letter. How fast are you getting an approval? Depends on, you know, there's so many moving parts in a short sale. Depends on the investor, depends on the bank, depends on if it's a half a approved short sale. Probably the quickest we've done it is a 30-day on a half a pre-approved. So getting it approved before even taking the listing. And that has to do a lot with the actual seller, the borrower, being in contact with a bank. And if it's a smaller bank, if it's a portfolio loan for the bank and it's not a Fannie Mae or a Freddie Mac you know, investor loan, then it gets approved much quicker to a 30-day approval. But you know, if it's a Fannie or a Freddie, all bets are off. Could be three months, could be four months. I have one that we just closed that was, I think the offer came in on um, September the 10th of 10, and it closed on the 9th of 11, September 9th of 11. Took a whole year. Yeah, that one was on hold for about four months. The lender said that they would not approve the short sale because the client had enough income, even though they knew that they were retiring in five months and wouldn't have the income, and they were just trying to be proactive. They said, we can't do it until they have their letters from Social Security with what their new income is going to be. So we took it off the market, the buyer held in, and put it back on active status or AWC at that point, and resubmitted the file and got it closed. Just depends. Everyone's different. So anywhere from 30 days to a year. Yep. Do they typically take a couple months? Four months is pretty average for us to get them approved and, and ready to close. Have you noticed that it's become easier or harder over the last couple of months? You know, it was getting easier. It was getting easier. But now a lot of the first, even in, in Arizona's anti-deficiency state, so on primary purchase money, they're not allowed to go after in a foreclosure. They can't go after them for the deficiency, right? So it stands to reason that in a short sale, they should be able to do the same thing. The law hasn't been tested yet on that. According to the attorneys, you want that language in the letter that you get from the bank anyway. But even in an anti-deficiency state where we know if they go to foreclosure, they can't collect, I'm getting first that are asking for contributions from the seller. And you didn't see that until recently. So they see any money in the bank, they want it. Have you experienced relocation assistance where the Banks will pay the owner to move out. On HAFA, they will pay $3,000. Maricopa offers, the county of Maricopa is offering up to $4,500. They have a fund set aside to help with owners that are in trouble. So you have to get that approved prior to having an offer. I don't think that a lot of agents know about that, but that is something that, that the county of Maricopa has set up. We haven't had any close with that just because people want to move on and don't want to wait for that process to happen. And usually people don't contact you until they get the NOD on their door. So if you have 90 days to get a house sold, you can't go through that process. Have you been able to maintain your commission rate or do the banks try to negotiate that away? Doug did not want me to say this, but we do not negotiate with terrorists or banks on our, <laughs> on our commission. So... Yeah, we're, we're like the government, no negotiating with the terrorists. We take all of our short sale listings at percent, knowing that the bank will want to negotiate, and we explain to the sellers that they want something from everybody. So that usually will hold us at a percent commission then. But, you know, there are times that the bank, that the bank will ask us to reduce in order to make it come together. We will drop it down to Both Doug and I sit on the professional standards, the grievance committees at our association, so we will only offer 
6% because you have to pay what you offer. And in case we get knocked down to, you know, we have to only offer. Are you all doing in the REO business? We do. We have Fannie Mae Direct, and then through National Realty Trust, our parent company, we work with some of the NRT REO. So Saxon, EMC, Chase are some of the lenders that we do REOs for. How long have you been doing the REO business? Yeah, I want to say it was about 08 we started, and I'll tell you, in real estate, one of the tricks is to try to stay ahead of the curve, and it's not easy, but we were fortunate. We've been trained. We have a coach, Tom Ferry, and Tom Ferry at the time had told us, I think he told us in 2007, yeah, he told us, hey, you know, if you haven't done it yet, you should start building your REO business. So what Kirsten and I did proactively was we went to Colville Banker and we said, hey, we're your number one agents. We would love to take on any of the REO business that Colville Banker Home Loans has. So they actually, that's what they did. They started giving us all of their, well, not all of it, but a good portion of their REO business. And then we developed a resume, a pretty comprehensive resume, so that in case we wanted to pursue other REO opportunities, we'd be, we'd be ready. The way you got started was through your company. You, you saw it early, and you went directly into your company, and they created a connection for you. Correct. Now, has that become a, a large part of your business? It was in, I would say, the biggest part of our business that it was was back in 2009, where I think we could track 101 of our sales directly to REO through you know, either a buyer or a seller because of our connection with you know, our REO business. But now, not as, not as much. The foreclosures are diminishing greatly, especially in this area. It might be different in other parts of the country. But here in Maricopa, and if you look at a trend graph, you'll see the numbers continuing to, to go down. And it's, we foresee that it's going to continue on with that trend. So right now, we have about, ooh, right now, we only have about five REO listings. So it's not, it's not a huge, not a huge part, but we, we list them and we sell them. We list them and we sell them. So that's how many we currently have, but they'll sell and we'll get more. I think last year we closed uh, 21 REO listings. So it was kind of a big bump. You had a bunch of volume there in 2009 and then it's kind of tapering off now. Yes. Mm -hmm. And how many closings do you think you had this year with REO? This year, to date, we've only had about 10 of our, of our sales. So it's gone from 101 in 2009 to about 21 last year. And this year, I think we'll probably close. We have, a, we have a number of them on our board that we're getting ready to get. So I'll bet you by the end of this year, we'll be either close to the number we did last year or just under. Do you think that the decline in your REO sales is due to the market slowing down, or did you make a conscious decision to stop pursuing them? I don't know that we really have said let's not pursue them. It hasn't been something that we've actively gone out and looked for more accounts, but 
the numbers have dropped off. We have four different asset managers that we work with, and all of them are down, way down. And one of the other things that we did that I think went directly to our reduction in REOs was about four months ago, we sat in on a NRT REO experts meeting where the where we were told, you know, if you want, you can change the zip codes that you get your REO business from. And what we had been doing was the zip codes were directly around where our office was, and most of them happened to be in Mesa. And the dollar volume, as, as we said in the beginning, here in Mesa, the average sale price is lower. And for REOs, it's even lower. So they said that what we could do is if we wanted, we could move our zip codes to closer to where our home was. While well, we live in Scottsdale, which is higher price point, and we're close to Paradise Valley, which is an even higher price point. So when we did that, we immediately saw a drop-off in the number that we were getting. Um, and I think part of that was because there's not as many foreclosures in Scottsdale and Paradise Valley as there are, say, in Mesa. So number one. But what we were thinking was, well, we'd rather have fewer of them at a higher price point. And so I think that accounts for a good a good deal of why we've why we've slowed down also. Let's change our focus and talk about your team. Let's walk through who's on your team. If you could let us know position and or title and what that position does. Could you give me a list of the people on your team? So there's Doug and myself. We do everything. Um, and then there's Joshua, and he's our oldest son, and he's our lead buyer's agent. He started with us as a transaction manager and did that role for about four years before he was ready to go on into being a buyer's agent. And we thought he was ready before that, but before he thought he was ready. And then Daniel Brown is one of our showing agents, and Andrew is our second oldest, and he is now the transaction manager. And then John Gordon is our REO manager. You mentioned a showing agent or a showing assistant. What does that position do? So what we try and do is keep Joshua in the office as much as possible to follow up on those buyer leads that we're getting in, either through our website, Yelp, or the different couple of relocation companies that we work with that I told you require less outgo on our part for commissions. So he will follow up on those leads as much as possible, stay back, write the contracts, do the inspection, and follow up with doing the repair request and all that. And that is able to happen because Daniel will be the one that is mostly out showing people. So Josh will get the lead, speak with the, the client, have them come into the office, sit down with he and and Daniel, and they um, go over what to expect when working with us and looking for property. They go through what the purchase contract looks like. They go over their search that they'd set up for them, see if there's any tweaks that they can make, set up a plan of when to go out and look at properties and uh, what their time frame looks like. And then Daniel will go off and uh, show houses when he's needed to. So try and get him out as much as possible with the buyers and then once he's done showing them they find the house that they want, Joshua writes up the the offer and does the negotiations for them. So they team up together? Mm-hmm, they do. What made you decide to create that arrangement as opposed to a traditional buyer agent who does everything by themselves? 
we did that, and they have been doing that, and we've recently moved to the showing assistant. They both started working with buyers. We told them that we had talked with our mentor now about the showing assistant and that that works um, really well, he's found, and we got some pushback, and that's when we develop our rapport with the client when we're out showing, and I don't think I could have somebody out showing the buyer, and then they come in, and I'm the one that's talking to them about the contract. I don't think that it's we're going to have the same rapport as we would if I'd been out with them all day and all that. Then we sent Joshua to a, a training class, and, and his eyes were opened. <laughs> so, yeah, so now after working in the field for, you know, a good good part of the year as buyer's agents, both of them, Joshua naturally gravitated towards the analyzing the comp, discussing the contract in full detail with people, and enjoyed that quite a bit, and he's very good at, at following up on, on the leads. And Danny loves being out and showing buyers. So they kind of naturally float into those roles. How long have you been working with this arrangement? Oh, gosh, it's been just a couple of months now, and it seems to be working out pretty well so far. So we'll see. Is everyone on the team licensed? Yes. That's a requirement of Cobalt Banker also. But it would be a requirement of ours if we started our own brokerage as well. Do you prefer to hire experienced or inexperienced agents? It depends. It would depend on what role. We've been talking about adding another showing agent. And if we do add another showing agent, we're going to be looking for somebody who doesn't have more than, say, one or two years of experience. Um, That agent who's really hungry, who just knows enough about real estate, but doesn't already have their own set way of doing things so that they'd be able to kind of fold into the way we do business a little little more easily. So that's the showing that's the showing agent. If we decided to to uh, add another lead buyer's agent, that'd be different. Matter of fact, what we probably will do is at some point fold like Daniel, who's a showing agent, into a lead buyer agent, and we'll want that person to have more experience. Well, it's an interesting experiment. I'm interested to see how it plays out. Us too. How about compensation? How do you compensate each of these team members? Our transaction manager is a salary employee. The buyer's agents are commissioned. We split with them. In your new arrangement, does the buyer agent or the showing agent, do they receive the same compensation or is it different between them? No, they receive the same. That's going to change. That will change as we add more showing agents. So as we add another showing agent, the lead buyer agent will be compensated higher than, say, a showing agent. And currently, I I assume that whatever you were paying a buyer agent before, X percent, you split that between the two as a company or as a business, you split that between the two so the overall commission was still the same cost to you. Right. And Joshua and Daniel have known each other through high school and college, so they agreed on their own when they both went into the buyer's agent role to split all the leads. So they kind of worked them together and then split the commission. So it's still that way because that's how they started. The other way you could do it would be the lead buyer agent has the lead come in and they hand it out to a buyer agent 
and then that buyer agent takes them out and gets that, you know, whatever that commission is, 50% of that commission. And then the next lead that comes in, you'd send that out to the other buyer agent and they'd get. The problem with that for Joshua and Daniel was that they were concerned that one of them might do more sales or have a higher sales volume and thereby make more money. So that splitting just seemed to be the fairest for them. Well, you've been doing this business for a while. Is it profitable? It depends on the year. <laughs> and yes, it is. The reason I ask this is there are a lot of people out there who are either getting into the business or they're looking at your model, thinking about doing it, and they want to make a business plan, especially this time of year. Could you help them out with either letting them know what your current profit margin is, that's a percentage of your profits per your revenues, or a goal that you're trying to achieve? I just want to say, I'm going to let Doug answer that question, but I just want to say that the current business model that we have now is quite a bit more profitable than the old, everybody's running around doing their own buyers and sellers, and this has worked out so much better to have buyers agents working for us, even though you're splitting your commission. The amount of volume that you can do is so much more than you on your own. And I know a lot of agents want to hold on to that and not share but it, trust me, <laughs> it has been way more profitable. And when you say that, you mean your bottom line dollars have been larger, absolute dollars, although your percentage of the revenue that goes to the bottom line may be smaller. Correct. Absolutely, yeah. And we probably put another 10% of our profits back into the business every year. So we're folding it back in to just reinvest in the business. As far as actual profit, it again depends on the year. In in 2007, eight, they were bad. And what we ended up doing was there was very little profit, if, if none. And there have been times when we've had, in years prior to that, 2005, when the market went through the roof, where we had high profit margins. And then in 2007, 2008, when the market tanked, we we were actually dipping into our own savings to pay salaries and not get rid of employees. So there was zero, zero profit. Um, we've come back from that abyss and anywhere from, you know, depending on the year, we're anywhere from 20, 20% profit margin now. So that's it's about where we are. Is that before or after you pay yourself? That is after. You each, as the team leaders, you pull out a salary or a commission, and then what's left over is the 20%. Correct. Do you pay yourself a salary or commission based on your own production? I'm paid on a salary like our transaction manager. We decided to do that with this short sale manager role, listing manager, whatever you want to call me. And I work for free. No, he takes a manager's disbursement. How do you both keep control of your time? You know, um, I said it earlier, if you're not time blocking in real estate, you're all over the board. You know, the old saying that time is money. Well, time may not be money, but if you don't manage your time properly, uh, I think you'll make less of it. So time blocking, like I said, a lot of times you'll find me in the mornings following up with clients. First thing, checking email, checking voicemail, but then moving on to calling past clients. We actually have a schedule and it's built into our 
built right into our calendar where, you know, the morning Kirsten's is different from mine and Joshua's is going to be different from Daniel's, et cetera, et cetera, which is going to be different from Andrew's. But for me, in the morning is usually my my time to follow up with uh, past clients. And then the afternoon, you know, like the middle afternoon, noon to, say, two is where I'm trying to work on business issues. And then I'll tr- I try my darndest to schedule my appointments for later in the day. So I'm going on appointments later. And that usually works out well because that's when people are – that's when they're available. Right, so they they want they want to meet with you after they get off work or at the end of their day. How many hours do you think that you're working in a typical week? I think we'd say about sixty hours. Kirsten, what drives you? <laughs> he always says he says to clients, "I'm the uh, brains." Oh no, wait, she is. I'm the good looking. No, she is. What do I do? And I always say, "You're the driver." <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Um, well, what drives me? We have two girls in college. <laughs> How's that? So we had two boys in college, and now we have two girls in college, and then they come with weddings after that, I think. Doug, what drives you? Certainly. I mean, what Kirsten said is true. I mean, nobody's doing anything for a living. Most people don't do it for just pure fun. They, You have to make money, and you have to live, and so certainly that's part of it. But I'll tell you, I love real estate, and I feel incredibly blessed to have found real estate. So, you know, it's funny when I've worked in other businesses. I worked for a defense contractor at one point. I worked for a company that and that sold educational software and videos and, and um, airtime. And, you know, it wasn't that sense of deep satisfaction that I get from helping people to buy and sell their house. It sounds hokey, but it's so true. I don't wake up in the morning and dread coming into the office. I love coming into the office. I don't dread my appointments. I love my appointments, and I mean that with every with every breath in my body. I love it. So what drives me? I love this business. I'm definitely passionate about this business. You know, it's funny. Kirsten and I talk about it. this business is different today than it was certainly when I started, which is totally different from 2005 during a very crazy market where value house values were going up, up, up. And now, Kirsten and I have said it many times, real estate has become not just helping people buy and sell a house, but it's become very much a counseling role with such a large portion of the market being short sales and foreclosures, you have a lot of people out there who are hurting. They're in trouble. They're in financial trouble. They're in emotional trouble. Some couples are, you know, they're struggling with just trying to keep their food on the table and uh, keep their marriage together. Uh, I'll give you, I'd like to let Kirsten give you a, a little story about a client we had that kind of highlights this. But what drives me, honestly, helping people to buy and sell their house. It's such a wonderful feeling. But Kirsten has a story about a client of ours who was going through a short sale. We had helped them buy the house years before. And when we showed up, actually before we showed up, Kirsten had a conversation with this client. Kirsten? Well, her her husband had lost his job in aerospace and she was very upset. And she was she was probably 10 years older than him and she had kids that were late 20s and this was his first marriage and 
they had two little kids together when we sold them their house. This was the first house she'd ever owned, and they had made it probably about six or eight months on their savings without him being able to find a job. Then he got offered a position in Sacramento, and they were going to have to be moving, and she was so upset. She was just beside herself, and we showed up at her house, and she fell into our arms sobbing and just couldn't speak. We ended up going to their attorney appointment with them because we knew that they weren't paying attention or couldn't understand so that they could hear what their options were as far as short sale deed in lieu and foreclosure and all of that. We ended up listing it as a short sale and telling her, you know, it's going to be easier when you get to where you're going. Don't worry. No, no, she didn't want to go. I think she was on the floor in their closet of their rental house in Sacramento for a week, he told us. And now we talked to her and she's just happy, happy. But, you know, at that point, I don't think she believed that there was life after walking away from your house. So uh, trying to get people through that is, uh, is, um, it's difficult, but it it is meaningful that you know that you were a, a little part of helping them through it. Kirsten, why are you successful? Doug? <laughs> and Kirsten? Yes, I think it's the combination of, of the two of us. We always say we make a whole person. You know, there are things that I don't like to do that he does very well, and there are things that he doesn't do as well as I do. He'll do everything, whether he likes to do it or not. So I think that we, we work well together. Doug, is that your same answer, why you're successful? Yeah, absolutely. Kirsten was a top producer before I met her. And when Kirsten and I teamed up, I was already in the top producer rank for Coldwell Banker. So we were already both doing fine. But once we combined our superpowers, <laughs> we we just took it to another level. And I think it's just what Kirsten said. There are things she does really well, and there are things that I do really well. And that is kind of the key to one of the many keys, but one of the keys to success in in any business is cooperation. It's been said, you know, I I feel like this too. I stood on the shoulders of giants um, when I got into this business, which really helped. But you can't know everything and you can't do everything. So what you'd better do is you better align yourself with people who have skills that complement yours and are different than yours. And so that's what we've tried to do. Like Kirsten said, she does things that I don't do, and I do things that she doesn't do. And then our uh, transaction manager has a different skill set, and our buyer's agents have a different skill set, and our REO manager who works for us has another skill set. So it's just aligning yourself. That's a lot of our success, I would say. It's just building a team that works well together. If you were to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Pray. And then after that, Kirsten? Well, we always recommend that, you know, they used to say that agents have six months of salary in the bank for your living expenses saved. And that's definitely at a minimum you should do that. But you have to start with the basics and people don't want to hear that. Even with agents that are trying to reinvent themselves, you need to start with the basics. Cool Banker has a fast start training program that all new agents have to go through. And I think most of the larger companies do something like that. You know, once you get your real estate license, that has taught you nothing about the actual day-to-day business of real estate. So, you know, going through some initial training classes and then getting a mentor. Even if your office doesn't provide a mentoring program, trying to find an agent in the office that does well, that does what you would like to do, 
and ask them to help you, to mentor you, I think would be very helpful. And then sitting open houses and picking up buyers. And and again, that's where most new agents will start because that's your quickest buck. But And it's easier than listings. Listings are harder for newer agents. But once you do that, and if you do open houses properly, you will pick up listings. So I think that's where you should start. Doug, you have any other thoughts? No, I think you pretty much hit it. The idea is when you first get into the business, as Kirsten said, you're not going to know anything after you've gone through real estate school about how how to actually help people buy and sell a house. So connecting with a mentor is a great idea, but probably step one is picking the right company. So I advise any new agent to look around check out the what different companies have to offer and not just the compensation plan because there are a lot of companies out there that will give you a phenomenal compensation plan but provide you with very little support very little marketing support so pick a company that's going to help to train you properly and who's got the marketing tools to actually help you help your clients buy and sell properties. That's key. Is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't addressed? For the newer agents, stick with it. You'll start seeing repeat business after three years. If you can hang in there, just work hard and treat it like a business. A lot of people get into real estate because they think they have flexible hours. And if you have flexible hours, you'll have flexible money. So, <laughs> so flexible paychecks. Make sure you treat it like a business. If you don't go to work every day to work, you will not you will not make any money at this business. It's it's not easy, but it is a lot of fun. And for the agents that have been around for a while and maybe, you know, their business is slowed down, you have to be flexible, you have to change, you have to look for new opportunities. Uh, when the market changes, you have to adapt and change with it. If you're doing business the way that you did business, you know, if Doug and I were doing business the way we did business when we first got into this market, we wouldn't be where we are now. So you have to be always willing to change and look for new opportunities. I agree with all of that. And just continuing to um, stay flexible, continue to educate yourself, stay adaptable to the market that you find yourself in, stay positive, continue to look for new ideas, And I think if you can do it, have a mentor. Even top professionals in golf, basketball, football, what do they have? They have a coach. Even people at the top of their game have a coach. And so I think think having a coach, having a mentor is a great idea to help get you to the next level. Well, Doug and Kirsten, you offer excellent advice. You are two halves of the same coin. You came together and combined your superpowers to form an amazing union and team. I have to believe the same caring and compassion you have for each other is shared with your clients. You built a strong foundation of past client repeat and referral business. It's a great model for success. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. 
and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.